On every piece of U.S. currency, there is an inscription which simply reads, In God we trust. Sometimes I wonder, is that a motto or just a myth? Today we continue our study in the book of Romans. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 13. I want to read in your hearing verses 1 to 7. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 13, allow me to begin at verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, think with my mind. Speak with my lips. Overtake my body and help me to preach. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we learned that in light of the massive mercy of God, we look at everyone differently. We look up and we see a God worth worshiping. We look within, we see a sinner worth saving. We look around and we see Christian siblings worth loving. We look behind, we even see enemies worth winning for the gospel. Here in our passage, the apostle gives us one more relationship. Because in light of the massive mercy of God, we as Christians even look at the government differently. Now let's just contextualize this passage in our day. In our little slice of life, we have just come from one of the most hotly, highly contested presidential elections in our history. There literally are millions of Americans who question the validity of the outcome. There are still many more who question the reliability of the electoral process and confidence in our U.S. government is at a historic low. There are many individuals who believe that the presidential election was stolen. There are other individuals that are citizens of this country who believe it is legit and everything was on the up and up. So whether you think the election was stolen or whether you think it's legitimate, 
the Apostle Paul has a very strong command to give to each one of us when he writes, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. When he writes the word everyone, that excludes no one. Everyone must submit. It is a strong command. It is a necessary statement. It is not an option. It is a command of the Lord. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Obedience to this statement, it affects pretty much all of life. It affects everything from our obedience to tax codes to stop signs. It affects our obedience uh, to purchasing a card tag to fastening a seatbelt. It affects our obedience to a minimum wage to a mask mandate. Here in this verse, the apostle says that it is necessary for everyone to submit to governing authorities. This influences us regardless of where we live in Birmingham or Bangladesh whether we live in North Carolina or North Korea. This statement is true. It spans the generations that everyone must submit to the governing authorities. There are many ways to unpack this paragraph, but let me just attempt to do it in this way. Clearly, the apostle gives one command and three reasons of why we ought to obey the command. So the command is clear. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Now you ask the question what the Roman church was asking, why? Why must we submit to the governing authorities? And in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, he gives three answers. For starters, we submit to the governing authorities because the government is established by God. Look with me again in verses 1 and 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So we submit because the government is instituted by God. Secondly, the reason we submit is because the government is God's servant. Look at verses 3 and 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Three times in these seven verses... The Lord refers to the government as God's servant. That the government is a servant, a minister of the Lord. That the government has a task to do, a responsibility, a job, you could say, a ministry. And what is the ministry of the government, regardless of what government you live under? The purpose of government is twofold. Number one, to promote good. Number two, to protect life. Isn't that exactly what Paul says? Listen, you do what is good... Uh, because the government is God's servant to do you good. If you do what is right, if you do what is just, if you do what is good, you have no reason to fear, because the government exists to promote good and to protect life. 
Now, of course, we said last week that these ideas of good and evil, right and wrong, they are not arbitrary. They are not subjective. They're not just individualistic even. But it is God who gets to define what is good, what is noble, what is right, what is wicked, what is evil. And according to God's standard of goodness, God's standard of rightness, if we live in a good way, a government is supposed to do you good. Oh, but if you do wrong, if you do what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord, if you break the laws of the land, which every law of the land is to be subject to the law of God, and if you break those laws, then realize that the government does not have the sword for nothing. The sword is that symbol of punishment. The sword is a symbol of death. And by these verses, uh, the Lord is giving biblical permission for nations to responsibly execute capital punishment. And from these verses, God is giving every nation the right to build a military. Because the purpose of the nation, the purpose of the government, is to promote good and to preserve life. So if there is a wrongdoer within the borders or outside the borders, if there is a wrongdoer, that wrongdoer must be brought to justice. And by implication, the Bible infers that a nation has borders. Because the one who's on the inside of the border who does wrong needs to be punished. And those who are on the outside trying to come in against the nation, they need to also be brought to justice. So here the Bible is very clear that the purpose of government is to promote your good and to protect your life. There's a third reason of why we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities, and that's because our conscience convicts us to obey. Look with me at verse five. In verse five, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So in these opening verses, there's a clear command. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. There are three reasons why we must submit. Because the government is established by God. It is instituted by the Lord. Secondly, the government is God's servant. And the purpose of that servant is to do you good and protect your life. And third, you submit to governing authorities because the Holy Spirit inside you convicts your conscience to obey. It's at this point that there ought to be questions swirling in your minds. There ought to be some questions of rebuttal. That as you walk through these five verses, you, you ask yourself, yes, but what about this or what about that? If you engage the text honestly, there needs to be a few questions that are in your minds right now. Questions like this, does God establish every government, the good ones and the bad ones? As Christians... How are we to relate to a government if that government no longer acknowledges God? As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how are we to engage a government if that government becomes so corrupt that they begin to call evil good and good evil? What if a government does not wield well the weapon of wrath? What if a nation begins to use the sword for genocide, to literally annihilate a segment of their population or to attempt to snuff out an entire race of people. How are we to engage in that culture? Ultimately, we're asking the question, are there limits 
to our submission to governing authorities. And if there are limits, what are they? And when do we enact them? These are the questions that are probably echoing in your mind. You're asking these questions. You're probably asking even better questions than that right now. But you're asking questions like this. Does God establish every government, good and bad? Are there limits to our submission to a government? I'm going to try to answer a couple of those questions this morning. For starters, let's go back to the text. The question that is perhaps being uh, spoken in your mind, does, does God establish every government, good and bad? And the answer from the text is that God establishes all government. God establishes all government. Every government is an institution of the Lord. Every government is instituted by God. It is God who establishes the government. It is, it is God who de-establishes the government. He sets it up. He tears it down. God is the one who's in authority. All we have to do is look back through the pages of human history and we'll discover that uh, there are more bad governments than good governments. There are more terrible kings than terrific kings. Just think with me just for a moment about Ahab. The Bible says of Ahab, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all the kings before him. And yet he was still king. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless dictator. And yet he was still on the throne. Think of King Herod. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. He ordered for the execution of all the baby boys two years of age and under living in Bethlehem and its vicinity when he just heard the chance and the possibility that the Messiah just might be born. Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the antithesis of Romans chapter 13. If in Romans chapter 13 the government exists to do good and to promote life, Pilate put to death the only perfect person who ever walked this sod. I mean, Pilate is the exact opposite of what Romans 13 is all about. Think about who Paul is writing to. He's speaking to Christians living in and around Rome in the first century in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, where it was said the sun never sets on the Roman Empire because it was so vast and so far-reaching. The early church had already survived Claudius. Claudius was a terrible Caesar. I mean, Claudius in 49 AD evicted all the Jews and the Jewish Christians from living in and around the capital city of Rome. Claudius' successor was a guy by the name of Nero. And at first, Nero appeared to be a good dude. And then he quickly turned against the church. By the time Paul writes this letter called Romans, Nero has already begun to persecute the church. He is kidnapping Christians under the cover of night. He is throwing them into the Colosseum to be devoured by lions and killed by gladiators. He is even spearing and filleting some of them alive, setting them on a pole, igniting them to illuminate his gardens at night. Nero was a horrible dictator. And that's the backdrop of Paul writing to the Roman church telling the believers everyone must submit to governing authorities for this authority has been established by God it is God who establishes the government it is God who de-establishes the government it is God who sets up kings it is God who takes down kings 
It is God by his permission who puts presidents in the office. It is God by his permission who takes presidents out of the office. So once again, let's contextualize this. As biblical believing Christians, no Christian ought to say the last four years were a mistake. God makes no mistakes. He permitted Donald Trump to be the president of the United States of America. In the same breath, no Christian can say the next four years are going to be a mistake. God doesn't make a mistake. You may say, well, humans make mistakes. Absolutely they do. But God doesn't. And Joe Biden is in that office of president over this land by God's permission. Because God is the one who establishes kings. God is the one who de-establishes kings. You remember what the Lord says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1? The heart of the king is in the hand of God Almighty. And he turns that heart wherever he wants it to go. God is in charge. So ultimately, um, it is God who establishes every government. But every government, the good ones and even the bad ones, are all under his jurisdiction. Every government is under the authority of God. God is the ultimate authority in this nation, in any nation, throughout the universe. God is the one who's in charge. That's why in the previous passage he said, do not repay evil with evil. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. The Lord does not want anarchy in the streets. God does not want vigilante justice. God is a God of order, law, not chaos and insurrection. But ultimately, every nation, every government is under the authority of God Almighty. So our highest allegiance is to God, not government. Our highest allegiance is to Christ, not Caesar. Our highest allegiance is to the sovereign one, not the Supreme Court. The highest allegiance of our life is Jesus and him crucified. I'm about to make a statement, and I think you ought to agree with me. Uh, if you don't, you, you should agree with me. Uh, that long before you were an American, you're a Christian. First and foremost, you are a follower of Christ. Don't misunderstand me. I love my nation just like you. I'm proud to be an American. But let's be very clear. According to this passage, our ultimate allegiance is to God and God Almighty. Long before we were Americans, we were Christians. We are Christians first. Our citizenship is not earthbound, but it's in heaven. And we do all that we possibly can to live at peace with all those around us in the hopes that we just might win some for the gospel and the glory of God. God establishes all governments. All governments are under his authority. Our allegiance is to him. He is the one who's in charge of all things. He is sovereign over the entire universe. I think of this when I uh, read about the interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. It's in John's gospel. Jesus is not saying a word. Pilate is getting irked because Jesus won't talk to him. And he says... Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to either set you free or to crucify you? And the first time that Jesus speaks on that night in John's gospel, this is what he says. 
You only have the power that's been given to you from above. You have no power, Pilate. You have no power, Caesar. You have no power, president. You have no power, governmental leader, unless it's been given to you by God Almighty. And the best thing for you to do is to recognize who God is, and God is sovereign. So let me answer another question. Are there limits to our submission to the state? It's very helpful for us to hear the words of Origen, the third century church father, who said something very similar to what was spoken in the 1930s by Kaysman, who was a German pastor under the Nazi regime. And it's also quite similar to what John R.W. Stott wrote. And Stott is one who is recognized as the architect of modern evangelicalism. And Stott just went home to be with the Lord about nine or ten years ago. All three of these men from different periods in history, they all say the same thing. And I'll summarize it in these words. That our submission to the state goes to the point where obedience to the government means disobedience to God. We are submissive right up to the point where our submission to the state equates to disobedience to God. Think back with me just a few examples throughout sacred scripture that prove the point. Some of you may recall the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three rowdy teenagers. They weren't being rambunctious and they weren't being defiant. They just simply knew that the edict of King Nebuchadnezzar, who said you must worship this golden image that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and you cannot worship anything else, they knew that was in direct contradiction to the word and the command of God. And so these three teenagers, not trying to be rebel rousers, not trying to be defiant, just trying to be biblical and trying to be devoted, they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not have to defend ourselves before you in this matter. For the God we serve is able to save us from your fiery furnace. But even if he does not, O king, we want you to know that we will never bow down and worship you. They weren't being defiant. They were being devoted. Because their submission to the state went to the point that obedience to the government meant disobedience to God. Think about Daniel. Daniel has been in captivity for decades. He's an old man by now. King Darius issues the decree. Over the next 30 days, you cannot pray to anyone except me. And Daniel knew that he couldn't survive 30 days without prayer. Which, incidentally, I wonder, could you survive 30 days without prayer? Daniel said, I can't survive 30 days without prayer. As air is to breathing, so prayer is to my spiritual life. Three times a day, he went up to his bedroom, he opened the windows, he faced Jerusalem, he knelt down, and he prayed. He said, if you're going to try to keep me from praying, you might as well suffocate me because I cannot live without praying to God. Was Daniel just being old and cranky and rude? No. He was being righteous because he knew that his God was the only God of the universe, the only one worthy of prayer. Think about Peter and John. Peter and John in the New Testament stood before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin told them, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, they said, well, 
you're going to have to judge for yourselves whether we ought to obey you or God. But we just can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. In other words, they're saying, we have a bad case of can't help it. We can't help but speak about what we've seen. We can't help but speak about what we've heard. You, you can't muzzle us. We're not trying to be uh, rude to our government, but we're just saying to you that we cannot help but to speak the name of Jesus. So you find these examples after example of individuals throughout the scripture, throughout the generations, who say that submission to the government has its limits. Let's be very clear. We must submit to the government. We must submit to the government because it's instituted by God. It's God's servant and the spirit inside of us convicts our conscience to obey. But also, there are limits to that submission because we submit to the state up until the point that obedience to the governing authorities equates to disobedience Unto God. Uh, Paul is using uh, this kind of logic when he speaks in verses 6 and 7. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who gave their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, then pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We submit to the governing authorities. If we owe them taxes, we pay taxes. As Christians, we ought to be the most honest on the income tax form. As Christians, we ought to pay not more than we should, not less than we should, but exactly what Caesar requires of us. And friend, listen, if you don't pay your taxes and you get caught, we will start a prison ministry and we will come and visit you, but that's exactly where you need to be. Because if you owe taxes, pay taxes. When Paul writes this, don't you hear the echo of Jesus in Matthew 22? The very same question came to our Lord when the leaders came to him and said, uh, hey, should we pay taxes? Now, the reason they're asking that is to trip Jesus, hoping to trick him into saying something that's insubordinate. But at the baseline of that question is a legitimate concern because even in the days of Jesus, you know, Pilate is ruling and, and he doesn't have much uh, acknowledgement of God. And so they're asking legitimate questions. Listen, this government is so corrupt. Do we have to pay taxes to them? Some of you may recall how Jesus handled it. Give me a coin, he said, whose inscription is on it. Caesar, they replied. And then Jesus famously said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, render to God what is God's. And with that, it quieted the crowd, and Jesus walked away. I think that this is echoing in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he pins those last couple of verses of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. I think he hears the Savior say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. So apparently there are some things that belong to God. Apparently there are other things that belong to Caesar. One of those things that belong to Caesar would be taxes or revenue or honor, respect. You, you do those things. But apparently there are some things that belong only to God. So here's my question to you this morning. What happens when we render to Caesar that which belongs to God? What happens 
when we as a nation render to Caesar that which belongs to God. Life belongs to God. It is God who is the maker of life. It is God who gets to define life. In a place like Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I was not hidden from you when I was woven together in that secret place. In a place like that and other places, it becomes abundantly clear that according to the Lord, life begins at conception. Nearly 50 years ago, Caesar redefined life. 1973, Roe versus Wade. The decision was handed down by the Supreme Court of our land saying that abortion was legal. Since 1973, there have been 60 million abortions. The only way that abortion can be declared legal in a country where it is illegal to murder any other person must mean that you have to redefine when life begins. So in order to redefine when life begins, Caesar redefined life as beginning outside of the womb. So up until a baby is outside of the womb, according to Roe versus Wade, then the woman has the right to choose. In our day, Caesar has expanded the argument to say not only is this a woman's right, but it's an issue of women's health. So now this is an issue of the health and the safety of a woman. So now abortion is legal and, uh, and it's, it's prominent in all 50 states so that over the last nearly half a century, 60 million abortions have taken place. All because life has been redefined by Caesar. That equates to 3,000 abortions a day. If you're doing the math, that's more than one every 15 seconds for the last 48 years. What happens when we give to Caesar that which belongs to God? Did you know uh, that it is illegal to kill the egg of a bald eagle? If you get caught killing the egg of a bald eagle, you can face imprisonment that's up to five years. You can face a maximum fine of $250,000. In this country, if you kill the egg of a bald eagle, there is a stiff fine and a prison sentence. But yet, you can kill the life of a living person inside a mother's womb, and it's legal in all 50 states. What happens when we give to Caesar that which belongs to God? Now, friends, I want to speak truth in grace today. When I speak to a crowd of this size, when I speak to those on the other side of the camera, I realize that there are probably more than a few of you who know the personal pain and the emotional scar of an abortion. Ladies, you may say it took place 18 years ago. Oh, but, but you remember the date. And every year when that date rolls around, you think about what your son would look like. You think about what he would be doing and now he would be 18 and he would be hanging out with some of our teenagers and graduating from high school and ready to go to college. I don't have to tell you 
about the deep emotional scars that abortion brings. And to the men in the crowd, maybe it was 25, 30 plus years ago, you were the boyfriend back then, and you said to your girlfriend, look, if you go to that clinic, they'll just take everything away. Listen, you and I were just fooling around, neither you nor I are ready to be parents. You gotta go to that clinic and make sure the problem is taken care of. And men, there are more than a few of you, you know exactly the pain of that and it's haunted you for three decades or longer. Friends, I want you to know that God's grace and his mercy, they are massive. And God is a gracious God. And God is willing to forgive anyone who comes to him to confess their wrongdoing unto the Lord. But let's just be honest. This is what happens when you give to Caesar that which belongs to God. Life belongs to the Lord. I would also say that marriage belongs to God. Uh, marriage is a gift of God and common grace to all people. Every civilization rises and falls on the building blocks of the family unit. You can read back through the history books and you realize that as far as a family goes, that's how far that country or nation will go. Marriage was the first institution of the Lord. It's older than the government. It's older than the church. It's nearly as old as dirt. It was God who performed the very first marriage ceremony. It was there in the plush garden of Eden that provided the backdrop, the angelic choir sang the prenuptial music. It was a match made in heaven, Adam and Eve. It was on that occasion that the Lord said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they will be one flesh. God is declaring marriage by his design. It's a biological man and a biological woman who come together until death do them part. This is God's design. This is God's instruction. This is how God declares that marriage ought to be. But what happens when Caesar redefines marriage? When marriage is no longer kept in the confines of the Lord but given to Caesar, then Caesar makes it very convenient for couples to get married and then divorce and then remarry as many times as they want to. And friends, I don't have to tell you, do I? That that's not by God's design. And I know there are extenuating circumstances and I'm not making a blanket judgment call on anybody, but let me just say, you, you, you understand that there is pain and chaos that comes from marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce. There's pain that's associated with that. Pain that is not by God's design but pain because Caesar was given marriage. And then here, in the last decade or so, uh, Caesar has redefined marriage to include same-sex couples. The homosexual agenda is blasphemous. And we can say that and still be loving towards individuals who are homosexual. All right, let's be very clear that the homosexual agenda is blasphemous towards God. 
And yet, we quickly make the distinction between sin and sinner because God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we too love the sinner because we are all sinners made in the image of God. And even our sin cannot destroy the Imago Dei inside of us. And so we have value and worth. Every person has value and worth because they're made in the image of God. And so we love the sinner, but like God, we hate the sin. And therefore, we can say, that the homosexual agenda is blasphemous towards the Lord. Because consistently in the scripture, God says this is an abomination. These are God's words, not mine. And yet Caesar has taken that which belongs to God and redefined marriage to include same-sex couples. What happens when we give to Caesar that which belongs to God? Gender belongs to God. God made them male and female. This past week I read an article that in our country, Caesar has redefined gender. So here in America, there are 64 genders. Please don't ask me to recount what all they are because I can't remember what all they are. But just in the article, it laid out 64 different genders, 64 different expressions of identity, 64 genders in the United States of America. Friend, what happens when we give to Caesar that which belongs to God? There may be more than a few of you who are thinking to yourself, Pastor, you are being so old-fashioned. You are being so antiquated. And my response to you is that, that, that I, I, I believe that the call of God upon my life as a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to call people to the Bible and call people back to the Bible. That those who do not acknowledge God as Savior and Lord, I am calling you to the Bible. For those of you who know better, who know that Jesus is Savior and Lord, I'm calling you back to the Bible. Because these are definitions by God's design. This is how God made it. And God didn't make a mistake to equate a, a redefinition need for marriage or for gender. You know, education belongs to God. It was Abraham Lincoln who said the philosophy in the classroom of one generation will become the philosophy of the government in the next generation. Whoa, how true Abe was. The philosophy in the classroom of one generation will become the philosophy of the government in the next generation. Education belongs to the Lord. All I got to do is just go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great Shema. And then he says, these commandments I give you, you are to impress them upon your children. So as parents, parents are supposed to be the primary discipler of their children. Parents are supposed to be the primary teacher of their children. And parents are supposed to teach. Impress upon them these commands. That word impress means that children are indelible. They are moldable. And somebody's going to shape them. So it might as well be you under God's design. So impress these commands upon your children. Talk about them when you rise and when you lay down. Speak of them at home when you're walking on the way. Bind them around your wrist, tie them around your forehead, write them on the door frames of your houses. Let it be abundantly clear that God is the ultimate educator and he gives the power to mom and dad to make sure that truth is taught 
to their children. But do I have to tell you that in the American culture, there is an onslaught of the American educational system against God. So that truth is questioned. Theory is passed on as fact. God has been dismissed from the classroom. And God is overlooked for the science of the day. God is not afraid of science and neither are we as Christians. Because God is the author of all truth, capital T. God is the one who knows everything exhaustively well. We have nothing to fear when it comes to the education of our children. So mom and dad, what am I telling you? I am telling you that you have to know what is being taught to your children and who is teaching your children. Whether you're in a public school or a private school or homeschooled. I think I've called everybody. It doesn't matter what capacity that your child is being taught. You've got to know what are they being taught, who is teaching them, who's on the school board of that given organization. And you've got to know because your son and your daughter are valuable to you. And education does not belong to Caesar. Education belongs to God. I'll say one more um, Church belongs to God. The church belongs to God. I think about the American church. I think about this church, especially the last 10 months when we've experienced COVID-19. It it has been crazy. It's been, okay, I'll use a word I said I never use, unprecedented. You know, you heard that word all the time, and I vowed I would never use that word, unprecedented, but I just did. Uh, These last 10 months have just been crazy. And sometimes I ask myself and I ask the Lord, Lord, did we submit too soon and too much to Caesar when it comes to your church? We did what every other church did, right? I mean, mid-March of last year, uh, said, hey, there's a lockdown, there's a shutdown, we can't meet, we can only have six people in a group at the same time. And then they upped it to 10 people. Woo! Right? I mean, we went from six to 10. Great! That's fantastic. Thank you. That really helps us a lot. Right? And for 11 weeks, we did not meet. For 11 weeks, from mid March to the end of May. And there's a clear mandate in the scripture it's Hebrews chapter 10. Do not forsake the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a clear mandate from Scripture that we are not to forsake the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but we are to continually meet together to encourage one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. And I wonder, did we submit too much and too soon to Caesar when it comes to the workings of the church, the worship services of our congregation. We did exactly what everybody else did, right? And I guess there is some comfort in that for some people. For me, that's not very comforting. I mean, everybody could be going in the wrong direction. Hey, we're all going the same way. I mean, what comfort is that, that everybody else was doing it? Some of you may say, but wait a minute, we never locked down. 
We never shut down. I mean, we never missed a Sunday, Pastor, and you're exactly right. And it was because of the wisdom and the expertise of those behind that booth and behind that glass that we were able to go in, in less than seven days from having no live stream to having a live stream that was watched in six countries and 22 states, to God be the glory. And some of you may say, but we had a live stream. We never missed a Sunday. And ever since that point, we've been live streaming our service and the imp- impact and influence of this congregation, the footprint has been expanded. Oh, pastor, look, look, we, we've, 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 we've really been creative in what we've done here. We never shut down. Okay, I'll give you that. And I will say that if it wasn't for the ability of those up there, we, I don't know what we would have done. So thank you. Thank you. But even with that being said, um, it is really hard for me to fathom that the author of the Hebrew text had live stream, YouTube, and Zoom in mind when he wrote those words. Am I the only one? I mean, the author of the Hebrew text, we want to say it's Paul. We don't know if it's Paul. It could be somebody else. It probably was somebody else. But regardless of who it is, God knows. And God inspired that author to write that text. And in Hebrews chapter 10, when he says, do not forsake the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching, I promise you, he was not thinking about Zoom. And he wasn't thinking about YouTube. And he wasn't thinking about live stream. So I wonder, I wonder, did we, did we give too much too soon to Caesar? Because now I'm beginning to think that, that when we give to Caesar that which belongs to the Lord, Caesar always messes it up. I've just itemized, itemized all five of those things, right? I mean, Caesar brings chaos to those things that belong to God. So I wonder... Did we surrender too much too soon to Caesar? These are concerns that I have. And if you think to yourself right now, pastor is really stepping out of bounds. I mean, he's talking about things that are like, woo, really out there. Listen, friend, if, if I'm out of bounds, will you please forgive me? But if I'm in step, God, will you please forgive us? What happens when you give to Caesar that which belongs to God? The answer, chaos. And the only one who brings order is God Almighty. For us to give back to God what belongs to God. Life belongs to God. Marriage belongs to God. Gender belongs to God. Education belongs to God. The church belongs to God. It belongs unto him. He's the one who gets to define it and direct it. The best thing we can do is give to God what belongs to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Don't misunderstand me. But give to God what belongs to God. I read these verses And I got to be honest with you, I get done with verse 7 and I think to myself, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because I am longing for his kingdom. It's the only kingdom that will be established forever. It's the only kingdom that will last for eons. It's the only kingdom that will take us into eternity. And Jesus' preaching was summarizing this one statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The only one 
who turns upside down sinners right side up is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's his kingdom that makes everything worthwhile. And it's only through his kingdom that everything makes sense. This morning, friend, if you don't know the king of this kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg you, come to him. His mercy is massive. His grace is available. All you have to do is come to him and say, God, I am a sinner in need of salvation, and King Jesus will save you. For some of you here, you are believers, but something has been spoken today that triggered an experience that really you've tried to bury for years, or something that's happening currently in your family, or some problem or difficulty that you're having. And right now, beloved, you just need to come, fall on your face before the Lord, and say, God, please help me to orient my life in such a way that I give to God what belongs to God, and I give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Or maybe there are many of you here who simply just want to come and pray for your country. To pray for our leaders. Their hearts are in the hands of God Almighty. Let's pray for them. Maybe you're here and you need to pray for your son, your daughter. As you think what's coming down the pike potentially and you think to yourself, uh, God, please Put my child under your divine protective custody and let them live a life surrendered to you. As God leads, you respond because we are his, the sheep of his pasture. And he is our great king, our great shepherd. Let's talk to him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. There are many thoughts in people's minds. There are many questions that are swirling. And we pray that you'll be honored and glorified. We love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.